I'm going to be very candid with you. We are living in a computer programmed reality. Welcome everyone to Simulation Nation, your portal to all things virtual. I'm your host, Johnny Android, and I'm here to keep you informed about all that's happening in the metaverse. We record our episodes live in Allspace every week. You can join us from your PC or VR headset, log into Allspace, join your Simulation Nation channel, and teleport in to offer your opinion, question, or whatever else. Today, we have a very special guest. Riz is a best-selling author, MIT computer scientist, and Silicon Valley video game designer who will break down for us why we may be living in the matrix for real. Riz draws research and concepts from computer science, artificial intelligence, video games, quantum physics, speculative fiction, and ancient Eastern spiritual texts. Are we living in a simulation? Riz will help us understand why that just may be. How's it going, Riz? Going well. How about yourself? <laughs> pretty good. Pretty good. How was that intro? Is that accurate uh, to describe yourself and, and wh where you come from? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say that's a pretty good description. <laughs> Great. Cool. Well, I, uh, I started, you came to my attention through your book, Simulation Hypothesis, which is a lot of what uh, we'll be, I'll be talking about today and be interested in asking you questions about um, just because for obvious reasons, we are very interested in simulations and the hype, uh, you know, um, all of that stuff. We're called Simulation Nation and uh, a lot of our sort of mythos is around that and we deal in virtual reality and all of that stuff. So it's really uh, exciting to talk to you because, um, you know, I've been interested in simulation hypothesis and I went searching for books on it and yours was the one who really hit the bullseye. Um, so thank you for, for putting it together and for getting it out there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's this topic that I've been interested in for a while and I noticed, you know, there are a lot of different aspects of simulation theory and there have been books on, on different aspects. Uh, but mo mostly there have been a lot of articles. And so, uh, you know, it, it was quite fun to try to pull all of this stuff together uh, into a book and also to include a little bit of the spiritual stuff as well, which doesn't often get talked about, but is actually quite relevant to the simulation hypothesis, in my opinion. <laughs> Absolutely. And I love how you tied that into the book. The two things I, I, I thought uh, I loved the most. Number one, you, you seem to come at it from a game designer point of view. So that's sort of an interesting perspective in the sense that you're you're sort of you know, postulating uh, uh, about it from the point of view of how would I design a game? And you're sort of comparing a lot of those elements to reality, but then also the spiritual stuff just gets really cool and, and really mind blowing. And, and so I, I love those two aspects of it. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, when I decided to write the book was um, around uh, 2016, I had just sold my last game company. We were, we were making mobile games uh, we had games for TV shows like Penny Dreadful or Grimm. I don't know if you've ever seen either of those. Uh, but we ended up selling that, and I was visiting a, a VR um, a startup. Actually, the startup that had bought our, our games was building a virtual reality um, sports game for HTC uh, for the Vive. And so that was you know one of my first exposures where I put on the headset and I started playing ping pong. And what happened was that the experience was so realistic. I mean, we were standing in a room, you know, there were a few things hanging down uh, from the ceiling uh, with wires and then there was the controllers, but it felt so realistic that particularly the responsiveness of when I hit the ball. Uh, and it wasn't even a super high fidelity game. Like the actual pixels, you know, w was not very high in terms of the rendering, but it felt so real that it really fooled my brain into thinking that I was actually playing ping pong to the point where I decided to put the paddle down on the table at the end of the game and lean against the table. And of course there was no table. <laughs> and so the controller fell to the floor right. and I almost fell over. And that's when I started to think, huh, okay, how far away are we from being able to build something like the matrix? And so I thought through what's the technology we would need to get there. And that was sort of the original genesis for the book. Got it. Yeah. And so maybe before we get into the, the book in particular, can you talk a little bit about your background? So how did you come to even that point where you got into game design and things like that? Yeah, sure. So, you know, my background is uh, as a computer scientist, uh, you know, I studied at MIT many years ago. Uh, and up until that point, you know, I had played a lot of video games when I was younger, um, dating myself here, but I used to play on the Atari system, you know, nice. way back when. Nice. And also with, uh, you know, the first games I ever built was a little tic-tac-toe game on the Apple II computer back in the day. And probably the first, you know, more sophisticated game than that I, that I built was a text adventure game. 
And so this was all in junior high school and high school. And then, you know, when I got to MIT, I started to learn a lot more about, you know, how we structure things in computer science and computer engineering and also how the hardware works. Um, and so, you know, after that, I ended up, uh, uh, getting into enterprise software for a little while and big data. So I went in a completely different direction uh, and I had a couple of startups in that area. But um, in 2007, I moved to Silicon Valley and we had just sold a, a company to a division of EMC Documentum. And I was kind of bored with that enterprise stuff and said, let me do something more fun. And at that point, Facebook games were starting to take off uh, here in Silicon Valley. And also um, mobile games were just starting to become interesting because Apple introduced the app store in 2008. And so, you know, uh, I, I'm an entrepreneur, uh, for many years and, um, I've been an investor now for the past decade. And so I always encourage entrepreneurs to look at new markets and this was a new emerging market. And so I, uh, uh, you know, got into the video game industry. I, I co-created a game called tap fish, which was the number one game in the app store. Uh, back in, well, 2010, I guess, so it's actually <laughs> 10 years right. ago. Now. So it was back when, you know, all the big guys were saying, yeah, this mobile game thing may not be that big. You know, um, uh, we're, we're going to stick with our PC games and our, <laughs> uh, and our console games. And yeah, you can have some, some casual stuff going on in the mobile side. Of course, now mobile gaming is a bigger industry right. than either PC or console or Hollywood yeah. uh, in terms of box office at this it point. Didn't, you know? Didn't Pokemon Go just re release their numbers and they made like $1.6 billion uh, in the last year or something? It's Yeah, that's right. I did hear that. It's, it's pretty amazing. I mean, it's actually a $70 billion industry as of the last year, I think, or the year before last. Wow. And so, you know, video games in general is much bigger than, uh, you know, a lot of other industries now, like I said, including the entertainment industry. And so there's a famous venture capitalist in Silicon Valley, Mark Andreessen, who once said software is eating the world. And, you know, I like to paraphrase that by saying video games are eating all the other businesses out there, right. uh, just because, you know, with gamification making yeah. its way into pretty much every other industry, uh, and video games have pushed, uh, the, the cutting edge of technology for many years. Uh, the first chatbots were really, you know, NPCs within games or little games that you could play. Uh, and so, you know, I'm a big fan of that. So that's how I got in, in, into that industry. And, and then I uh, went back to MIT and, and ran a um, uh, accelerator for playful technology companies, which included virtual reality, um, VR, AR, mixed reality, uh, as well as blockchain and digital currencies, virtual currencies uh, for a couple of years. And it was after that, then I, I really got serious about my writing. Uh, and that's when I uh, started writing the book. And I wanted to get it out by the 20th anniversary of The Matrix, mm -hmm. which was on March 31st, uh, 1999. Mm -hmm. And so I barely, you know, I barely got it done in time <laughs> and got the book out uh, on that. So that was a lot of fun too. So this is, so are you saying that this is almost the two year anniversary to the day when you got the book out? Uh, yeah, almost. It was, uh, yeah, literally a week from today, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ago. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah, great. that's right. We can and then, uh, you know, sorry, we'll call ahead. this the two year anniversary episode. There you go. Absolutely. <laughs> and I'm actually working on a new book now, which is called the simulated multiverse, which is a follow-up to the simulation hypothesis. And that one should be released in September, which will be, uh, 30, uh, 90 days before the new, the new matrix four movie comes out. Yeah. Right. You're right. You're right on track with the Wachowskis there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, that's, that's a, that's quite a, quite a background there. I'm, I, you know, it's interesting cause you're, you know, we, we're gonna, we'll talk about AR and VR and all that, but it's interesting that you started in text games because of, I don't know if you've ever tried these new text games that are out these like AI dungeon, which is the old idea of those old school text games, except now you're playing against a sort of AI that can interact with you in a way that is, um, sort of innovating as it goes. So it's, it, uh, yeah. it, you see, so you never get the same story twice. Yeah. I, I've seen some of those like, uh, using GPT three, which is the AI engine they've created a uh, few people have created text adventure games where it, th there's no actual map, right? So when I created a text adventure game, or when you go back to Zork, mm -hmm. you know, back in the early days, you know, they had a map 
of all of the different uh, rooms and had descriptions that were stored in files. And so now the AI will generate those. Uh, at least the one that I played, you know, it, it wasn't quite convincing. Mm-hmm. It was convincing in each time you entered a room. It looked, inter- it was convincing. You're like, oh, that's kind of But then you go to the next room, there was no connection mm-hmm. to the previous room. So it looked like it was almost a different game in each room. But over time, that will get better, right? right. Um, and so, I mean, the way they do it now is they're just using, you know, uh, machine learning algorithms against uh, lots of pages of text and finding words that end up being next to each other. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they'll generate based on that. And they actually gotten pretty good at it. There was a, uh, I don't know if you read the, uh, there was an editorial in the, in the Guardian, you know, that said an AI wrote this <laughs> editorial right, right, uh, yeah. and it was actually pretty good. I remember reading it and thinking, impressed. so then I went and looked at what they did and they actually generated eight different essays and then they had a human editor figure out the pieces that would look like oh, they would <laughs> fit cheating. well together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so right. then they had a cohesive essay. I mean, the individual parts were good, which is just like the, uh, the game we just talked about individually. It looks good, but if you try to put it together, you realize, Oh, okay. Something's not quite hanging together, but I think we're definitely down going down that path where AI is becoming a way to create content, you know, for games uh, so that humans don't have to create it. Yeah. Well, don't have to, or, or can't. So that's the scary part, right? Is we're going to get, we're going to get, uh, um, you know, every job is going to become obsolete, unfortunately down the road, it, it, depending on how far we have to go for that to, to happen. But I'm sure all of our jobs are on the chopping block, even us writers. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> I uh, think we have a few years as writers. Yeah. Hopefully we have a few years. Exactly. Well, you know, video uh, games have been looking at generating content for a while. So I don't know if you've ever seen a game like no man's, was it no man's sky? No man's sky. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Yeah. The one that, had like 18 quintillion planets and each planet had its own environment and flora and fauna and they used all these through fractal rendering algorithms to make it look realistic and make each one different yeah yeah yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy. Now, I love that sort of gets into your later on in the book with the multi, uh, multi-world theory and all that. But let's, let's, let's go back to the beginning, uh, a little bit more the beginning of the book, uh, Simulation Hypothesis. Um, I love, uh, you, go, you go right back to the beginning with Plato's Caves. Um, so we've, we, <laughs> we, maybe we don't go need to go that far back. But um, I certainly love your ideas of Maya, the idea of the illusion. Um, I'm, I'm currently writing something that has a character named Maya and a character named Bro- Brockma which is based on uh, his name is Brahm based on Brahma. So I, I love this idea. Do you want to touch just a little bit on um, the idea of the Hindu Maya a world of illusion? Yeah, sure. You know, so the, the more I got into simulation theory, you know, I'm going back to philosoph- Western philosophers like Plato and uh, Descartes, you know, who also uh, said that, you know, if there was an evil demon tricking me into thinking everything was real, uh, how would I know? I wouldn't really know. The only thing I can be sure of is that I'm thinking, therefore I am. Right? So, you know, it was the, the genesis of that. I started to realize, well, you know, with the Eastern religions, you really don't have to make much of an analogy at all. You don't need an allegory of the cave, you know, in, in the Buddhist traditions and in the Hindu traditions, they basically say that the physical world around us is an illusion. You know, it's a carefully crafted illusion. It looks real, but, you know, Buddha himself said that everything is like a reflection in a very clear mirror, you know, which sounds to me a lot like pixels, you know. Mm -hmm. And if you go back to, you know, some of the ideas that they put forward, one of which is reincarnation. And so the idea is you download into a body, you play that avatar, if you will, right, throughout the uh, that life, and then you upload somewhere else the information that, that, that came out, and then you download into yet another character, and you play that out, but that there is some information that survives, you know, between that, and, you know, between Hinduism and Buddhism, there's a little bit of uh, slight differences of what is that thing that reincarnates, right? In Hinduism, which is a little bit closer to the Western traditions, there's a soul uh, that is incarnating, and within Buddhism, you know, they're a little um, vaguer, but but they, you know, they, they try to say that it's more like a bag of karma. <laughs> so, you know, I like to think of it as a set of quests that you have set up for yourself. And each time you interact or do something in the virtual world, uh, you set up a new set of quests that you've unlocked, perhaps, <laughs> based upon your actions. Uh, and that gets stored somewhere in a cloud server, right, using cloud in kind of a, a double sense here. Um, and, and then, you know, during your next uh, gameplay character, uh, you need to go back to some of those items that you have and you pull them off of this list, which is like the bag of karma in the Buddhist 
traditions. And you know, behind me is uh, what is a uh, I think Nepalese depiction of the uh, hmm. the wheel of life. You know, and the basic idea is you have to keep playing. You know, until you've taken this this set of quests and you've achieved all of those quests and all of those achievements. And so it's it's kind of a increasing but then eventually a decreasing set of things that you have to do uh, as you learn to play the game and so you know for me this was very similar to what i call the rpg version of the simulation hypothesis you know and so this is a point that not a lot of people make when they talk about uh, simulation uh, theory particularly in articles in science magazines but i think it's actually the most important point about simulation theory and that is what i call the npc version versus the rpg version and in the npc version we're all just ai running on a simulation on a computer uh, and we have no existence outside of that. So if you use the matrix as an analogy, analogy, I guess we're all Agent Smiths, right? right. <laughs> in a way. Although he did find a way to get out of there. <laughs> but that's, that's another thing altogether. In the RPG version, we exist outside of the simulation, just like in the matrix, right? Uh, Keanu Reeves and Morpheus, Neo and Morpheus, they existed outside as physical beings. And then they had a character inside the game. And when you're jacked in, you forget about that character. Um, and so, you know, this analogy of dreams is a very strong one. Uh, you know, in the, in the Vedas, they talk about the Leela or the grand play of the gods. And they also talk about, you know, the world being a dream of the God Vishnu. And in the Buddhist traditions, they, you know, explicitly use the analogy of a dream. Uh, and in, in the Tibetan Buddhist traditions, there's something called dream yoga. And in the dream, you learn to realize that you're actually, you know, in something that is an illusion, but it seems real. And then you use that awareness in the physical world to realize that the physical world is also a kind of illusion or dream. Uh, and so I like to think if, if, you know, those texts or spiritual teachings were given today, we would use an analogy from today rather than an analogy from 2000 or 5,000 years ago. We would say, instead, instead of Shakespeare saying, you know, life is like a stage, like a play and all the men and women are, are merely players. Uh, you know, all these guys would say that we live in an interactive multiplayer online video game, right? Cause that's one that I think makes more sense to us today. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, lots, lots to unpack there, but I guess, um, uh, where I'd start is I, I love how you sort of connected that, uh, idea of, um, karma, you know, and you're playing a game and you're moving forward in a level. I wonder, you know, I wonder if it, from a bio biologist point of view, if that's the epigenome, I, I don't know if Eddie was really made that connection where it's like you, you, let's say you smoke and you don't take care of your lungs in this life. And then epigenetically you've shifted your DNA. And that is then the bundle of karma that is sent over to your offspring who then are reborn to have the failings of your life. Plus the thing they have to overcome. I don't know if, if you've thought about it that way, or is that completely different? Well, you know, that's interesting. I haven't heard of it specifically there, but I think, you know, epigenetics is something we don't fully understand, right? Uh, be, because it's not genetics, it's something else that's influencing the genes. Uh, so, I mean, I think within the Eastern traditions, there's this idea of layers or kosas, they're called. They're like sheets that surround the body, kind of like what we might call aura, like our aura, but, you know, there's a physical and then there's around them. And so that when you have uh, a, let's say an injury and it's not so much the injury itself it's how you react to the injury right so the buddha said that there are two arrows if you get shot with an arrow one is the physical arrow you can take it out but there's another you know spiritual arrow that gets lodged in there that's not taken out because you resent being shot you don't like the person it's about grasping and how your reaction is and so that that energetic layer gets passed down to the next body. Uh, but it's interesting. I, I bet there are some other aspects for how does that interact with the physical body? It's something that, you know, science doesn't really understand. A lot of Eastern traditions have a lot to say about how it does, but they always just say, well, it's a subtle thing. You can't really mm -hmm. know exactly how it's going to happen, but it's very subtle. Right? Right. So there has to be a mechanism, right? I'm an engineer. So I always like to understand what is the mechanism. And so, you know, if you think about how we render characters within a video game, uh, there are like layers. There's like the, the, the model, you know, which if you see it without the, uh, the texture, you know, you just see a bunch of 
triangles and squares, etc. And then you, you you layer on on top of that. And so you can think of other layers on top of that that might include information about who you are and what you're going to do, which you can't necessarily see in the rendered world. And that's like a distinction that I like to make is that the physical world is like the rendered world. In any video game, rendering is done based on information that's stored somewhere. It's there, right? But it's not necessarily in the rendered world, like just your score in a video game, right? It's not necessarily in the world, uh, but it's kept track of somewhere and it's available to you at all times. Right. Absolutely. So that, yeah, that sort of leads me to the, the, your, you do, you touch a lot on the quantum theory. So I think, I think everyone has, has heard of the idea of, you know, uh, that everything is a potentiality. Uh, and so, you know, we may, you know, the act of observing is the thing that causes the potentiality to crash into a, a physical, uh, object or objects. Um, I, I, I love that you touch on that idea. The, the one that I was not as familiar with was the idea that time is quantized so that there's some kind of a universal clock. Um, do you want to touch on that a little bit? That was an interesting idea. Uh, yeah, sure. So, you know, there's three or four different areas that relate to the physical world uh, that I think are important when we talk about simulation. And the first is this air, quantum indeterminacy, which you had talked about, which is the, they call it the observer effect or the measurement problem, which is that everything is a set of probabilities and it's not until they're observed that the probability wave collapses to a single, um, you know, possibility. And to us, it looks like that's the only one that exists, but where do the others exist? And, and I spent a lot of time in the book talking about how this is actually an optimization technique, uh, because you only render that, which you can see, like in video games, the, if you were to go back to the eighties and say, you know, I, I want to create World of Warcraft. So, well, you can't do it because the processors can't uh, process all those pixels, right? But it wasn't just that. We didn't. We hadn't even really gotten the techniques for 3D models to model the world. And so, the way, the reason we're able to render it now is we only render that which your avatar can see at any given time. Um, and so, that's you know one of the big areas. Another big area that's interesting is sort of the discrete nature of space and potentially of time, right? And so, uh, you know, one of the big paradoxes that goes back to the Greeks is Zeno's paradox, which is this idea that if before you can get somewhere, you, you have to get half of there, right? And so, in, in normal math, you can always find a half of something, like you can always subdivide uh, it further and further. And Newton, New, Newtonian classical mechanics is continuous. So you can, you can always divide it further. So Zeno's paradox is how do you ever touch the wall if there's always a half, a half, a half point that you're going to have to, to make? And, and one of the resolutions to that is that, well, space may be quantized. Uh, and so all of quantum mechanics came about because it turns out that things exist in quanta or specific discrete measurements uh, of light, for example, we call a quanta of light is a photon, right? And, uh, you know, electrons can only live at certain places or certain energy states uh, outside the nucleus of the atom. And so when, instead of going, you know, from say 30 to 40, it jumps, right? And that's what they call a quantum jump. And so you can only be in these, these places. And so uh, they found that the, the smallest thing you can measure in space is something called the Planck length. Uh, and so that seems to be a quanta of space. And so many, uh, many scientists theorize that we also have a quantized version of time, right? Because of course, you, you could have Zeno's paradox in time as well. How could you ever get to the next moment if you can always, uh, you know, go to half and half? And so uh, there's a, a Planck time that's been defined, which is basically the amount of time it takes at the speed of light, which is, you know, another aspect of, <laughs> of uh, you know, why do we have the speed of light as the speed limit? You know, why can't we go any faster? Well, it turns out you and I are talking at the speed of light right now, right? Mm -hmm. Because of electromagnetic signals. Uh, so, uh, but within uh, the quantized time idea, it's that uh, however long it takes the speed of light or light to go the Planck length, that is the minimum time that can also be measured. Now, we don't know that for sure, but it is a theory that's out there. And so there are a lot of people that, uh, that believe that may be the case, in which case it starts to look a lot like a computer simulation because in a, in a computer, you have what's called a clock speed at the level of the microprocessor, right? We have our whatever gigahertz, uh, which are billions of operations per second. But the reality is we, the computer can only measure 
some multiple of that clock speed, right? If you're inside a program, uh, you don't really know how much time has gone by. You can only figure out how many operations of your program have run without consulting some external source. And so that's why we, we can do that. But so time is very quantized in a simulation. But more than that, in a multiprocessing environment, like, you know, I have multiple windows open on my computer. You probably do too. Uh, if you're in one of those processes, you know, the process could be what we call context switching. It could be switched out. And another process will run for a certain number of instructions. And then it'll go back to the other one. And the, the NPCs in that first process have no idea how much time has passed necessarily. Right? To them, they just pick up right where they left off, kind of like a save game in, in a video mm -hmm. game. Right? Mm -hmm. It's always there. And so, you know, all of this is suggesting that, 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 that we may have some type of uh, quantized time or some ability to go through steps, but we can't get any smaller than that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then it, it kind of reminds me of that, that Black Mirror episode where the, uh, John Hamm is living in the egg and he can, they could, the, the person on the outside could speed up time or shrink time depending on how much punishment they wanted to give him. So they put him sort of in this purgatory. And if they want him to feel like he's had a five year prison sentence, they just, you know, it could last two seconds for the person on the outside, but they just press the fast forward button. And for him, it's five years. And so that's kind of a similar idea where they can, you can manipulate time. You can stop it. You can start it. You can use all of its little pieces to, to sort of elastize time. I guess. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's really interesting. I haven't seen that episode, but I think there was a deep space nine episode where uh, chief O'Brien got uh, 20 years in a penitentiary, but it was just implanted in his memories. And, right. you know, Philip K. Dick was, was heavy on this idea of uh, false memories. But I think, you know, since we're on the topic of quantum physics, we realize time isn't necessarily what we think it is. Right. And it turns out that the equations of quantum mechanics work, whether you go forwards or backwards. Uh, but then there's, there's also this experiment called the delayed choice experiment, which is actually, you know, one of the most baffling, uh, I think experiments out there, even more so than the double slit experiment, in my opinion, because it, it redefines what time meant. And so the easiest way, you know, the easiest way to talk about quantum indeterminacy was Schrodinger's cat, right? The cat is either alive or dead after an hour. You don't know which one until you look. The easiest way to talk about the delayed choice version of this is to say, suppose there's light coming from a quasar that's like 15 billion light years away. So that means that light started 15 billion years ago. And suppose there's a galaxy in the middle or a black hole, and the light has to decide to go to the left or to the right. And suppose that's, let's say, a thousand or a million light years away, right? So the light had to make the decision of whether to go left or right, let's say, a thousand years ago. Right. Well, it turns out that if we have little catchers here on Earth that catch the polarized light slightly differently, we can figure out which one it was. But according to the results of quantum experiments, that choice isn't made until we actually catch the light. So that means our measurement today is influencing something, or at least it's reflecting something that happened a thousand years ago. But it's not clear what happened a thousand years ago. So it's almost like the past isn't the past. So, you know, time is very strange when you think about it, which is a lot like in, in, a, in a computer you know, simulation, you can render time anytime, right? You can add memories, you can add a history at any time, and the history is just information. So because it's just information, it's stored as bits, you can modify it, you can change it, you can decide how to render it, right? And in fact, we do this all the time in video games. We send information from the server, you know, out to, to uh, your screen, and we could be sending slightly different information to your screen and my screen. So even in VR, right, if you we were both in VR, uh, we're in the same room, but it's possible we're seeing something slightly different. Why? Because it just depends on what information the server decided to send, right? Um, and so, so that's why it's pretty baffling, you know, this idea of what, what time is all about. And so the simulation hypothesis provides us an interesting framework, right, that these things would make more sense if we were in a, you know, render what you need uh, type of world rather than a material world with a single timeline that goes from the past, uh, you know, to what Newton and others would call the single, the arrow of time. If we just had a single arrow of time, uh, then all of this stuff shouldn't be happening. Right.
Yeah, it, it, the fact that the the present can determine some of the past and the past and present is is really fascinating and kind of counterintuitive, but just really interesting to think about. And it kind of reminds me of another idea that you touched on, which I love, which is young synchronicity, right? So it's like we think that we are only in in control of uh, of what's in our uh, physical uh, surroundings, and we can we can talk and people can hear us, and we can pick up a rock, and that's uh, a cause and effect kind of um, relationship we have to the world. But of course, Young's synchronicity, uh, you bring up the idea of associatively stored data. Um, so I wonder if you could touch on that, because that's another really interesting idea. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Young defined a synchronicity as an a-causal relationship where two things seem to have a relationship. But you can't find a, you know, kind of a, a physical cause to that. Uh, and, you know, it could be as simple as you thinking of a friend who phones you just now, right? Um, and so, you know, he had a bunch of examples of that. Uh, and one of them was this woman who had a dream of a beetle. And while she was telling him the dream, something tapped on the window. He opened up the window and there was a beetle that flew in. And actually in the dream, it was an Egyptian scarab. And this beetle was about as close as you could get to an Egyptian scarab in uh, Austria, wherever they were in Europe. Uh, and so these things have a coincidence in time uh, and there's, it seems like there's some relationship between them. And, you know, I've been fascinated by this for a while. I wrote a book uh, a couple of years ago called Treasure Hunt, which is all about what I call clues, uh, feelings of deja vu. And we can talk about Philip K. Dick. He talks a lot about this in a second. Uh, right. But so, you know, with synchronicity, it seems like things are connected, but we can't see why. And so, you know, as I started to research it, it seemed like, well, a technological solution is quite interesting um, because, you know, it's sort of like... Um, uh, there, there's a woman named Diana Walsh-Pasulka, and, and she wrote, uh, I don't know if she coined the term, or a guy named Jacques Vallée, and they do research into, uh, Jacques Vallée is a venture capitalist, but he researched UFOs and was one of the, he was the inspiration for the French scientists in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, uh, but he used to work for, for NASA and help, you know, map, map out Mars and all of these things. And he was one of the first to say that it's actually a technological singularity. <laughs> and it's kind of like, you know, if I'm thinking of, if I'm shopping for something and then I go on Facebook and I see an ad and I'm like, how did it know that I was shopping for this thing? Well, it turns out there is a technological reason why I know is it's called cookies <laughs> mm -hmm. behind the scenes and big data, but we can't see that. And so we think it's just magic. And so something mm -hmm. very similar could be going on here in the physical world where when we see a synchronicity, it's really because of association of data, and that's how the data is stored, uh, and that's how it gets presented to us, but there are pieces of that that we just can't see. And so it looks like either magic or it doesn't exist or it's just coincidence. Right. Uh, but you know, there's something else going on, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love that. I remember another Freud Young uh, thing that they were they were talking once, and then as they were talking, a book fell off the shelf that happened to open on the page that was the answer of the thing that they were debating, and it was like that was another one of their synchronous idea things that happened. It's completely uh, completely wild. As you were talking, you know, I was I thought of another book that sort of touches on that, which is uh, Deepak Chopper book, the spontaneous um, uh, what's it called, the spontaneous fulfillment of desire, uh, which is a similar idea where you it's almost like the uh the laws of attraction where you put out this sort of vibration and then that vibration will be able to attach to another one or something like that so right um, yeah i mean i haven't read that book but yeah that's you know a very common idea within kind of the spiritual world yeah. uh but you know what are the what is the mechanism for that right right that's you know when you think of a simulated world it becomes a little more reasonable than if you think we're in a purely material world uh because you know the desires are being registered anyway as part of this database of information that we call karma <laughs> and you know as the system is deciding what it's going to present you with you know it might go to your quests or it might go to your desires or it might go to challenges that you need to have in this life so it provides a different way to think about it i think using today's technology terms Right. And so you've, you touched on Phil K. Dick. So we're huge fans, obviously, of Phil K. Dick over here. If you had heard our, our intro song, it, it, 
it, it quotes that that's uh, 1977 uh, interview that oh. he did in Paris where he says uh, we are living in a computer generated simulation. That's our that's literally our intro. So when you hear this episode, you'll be able to hear that. Um, so so he, of course, yeah, talking about um, false memories and talking about uh, people controlling us f- uh, from a different sort of dimension. Uh, he, he had a lot of these ideas um, going on. Do you have a, a particular idea of his or a particular book of his that you've gone back to over and over? Yeah. So, you know, for me, it was actually that Met speech that I go back to over and over. And, you know, there's a famous quote from there. And people remember the first part of the quote, which is that we are living in a computer programmed reality. Uh, And they kind of ignore the second part of it, which is that the only clue we have to it is when some variable is changed and we have feelings of deja vu uh, and we think we're reliving the same, the exact same uh, sequence but with something slightly changed. And so, you know, as part of uh, my research for the simulation hypothesis, I interviewed his wife, Tessa. And, and you know, she told me that, that he actually did believe this idea that there are potentially multiple simulated timelines and that what happened with, like, The Man in the High Castle, which, uh, you know, uh, I, I really like the Amazon series uh, that came out recently based on that. But in that timeline, the Japanese and the Germans won World War II. And so she said he believed that that was an actual memory of his and not just, you know, fiction that he made up. And so he he was obsessed with uh, kind of a, a dark, uh, you know, fascist type society. And, uh, you know, he wrote about them and he says in his Met speech, and I, I didn't realize a lot of this till after I wrote the simulation hypothesis because I went back to it and I decided to read the whole speech. And I said, wow, this is actually quite interesting uh, uh, because, you know, he believes that what ha- what's happening is that uh, somebody looked at that timeline and said, okay, this isn't great results. We want to rewind it. We want to change some variable and we want to go forward again in time. Uh, And that's what led to our particular timeline. And in fact, he felt that this was happening all the time, not just with that. So he he felt like he was in community. And this is something Tessa told me, wasn't in the speech, but she said that he felt he was in communication with beings uh, who were controlling the simulated reality. And they told him that they had changed the JFK assassination you know, from uh, Orlando or from Dallas, which is where it happened to Orlando, where they kept changing it to different cities and either he kept getting assassinated or it led to a really bad outcome like a nuclear war. So they just kind of went back to the timeline where he was he was assassinated in, in, in Dallas. And so, you know, this idea actually inspired my, my next book, which is called The Simulated Multiverse. And in fact, I have a whole chapter on that Philip K. Dick speech. And so, you know, he, he first thought of the idea, I think Tessa said, uh, when he uh, he went to the bathroom and he knew there was like a chain uh, mm-hmm. to turn on the light. And this is back in like the 60s mm-hmm. or 70s. Uh, but it wasn't a chain. It was a it was a light switch. And he said, mm-hmm. wait a minute, I, I remember that. So he had a slightly different memory than the physical reality. It turns out he used that idea in several of his uh, in several of his novels, um, I think uh, Time Out of Joint was one, and right. The Adjustment Team, which was right. the basis for the movie Bureau. The Adjustment Bureau with yeah. Matt Damon, uh, was that somebody was freezing things and they were changing things, uh, and you had a memory of the other. And that, of course, leads to another weird phenomenon, which is the Mandela effect, where people remember Nelson Mandela dying in, in prison in the 1980s. So, uh, and yet in our reality, you know, he didn't die in prison, he went. And became a uh, you know the president of South Africa in the nineties, and then he died in twenty thirteen. And so it turns out there's a whole online community of people who remember different timelines, right. small things like the Bernstein Bears versus the Bernstein Bears, uh-huh. uh, or movie lines or movies that aren't there. And then there are bigger events like Mandela's death. And so I said, well, you know, this is kind of interesting. What if I took the Philip K. Dick speech as an inspiration, my my book about the simulation hypothesis and the quantum multiverse, which are parallel timelines, and see if I can explain the Mandela effect from this, which is what led to my next book, which is the simulated multiverse. <laughs> well, very cool. I will definitely be picking that one. I've had some, I've had two theories along those lines, one of which I hope it doesn't get me in trouble with any of my listeners, but um, I, I, I kept thinking like, you know, the only thing that would take Trump out of office would be something like a virus. So what if someone came back and put the virus into the world so that we knew that he would not get reelected and like save us from nuclear holocaust or something like that 
Um, that's <laughs> right. So see, you're like Philip K. Dick there, right? I mean, he called it orthogonal time. There you go. He said that there were beings outside of time that were watching these realities uh, and they would try out different things and see which one right. worked. And then they would go back and change something. And of course, you don't know that it was changed unless you, you like, say like he did, you have a residual memory of something that right. was changed. So that, that would be right along those lines that right. if that led to a bad place, they decided to come back and change things. Right. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. And then, of course, for anyone who's really into Bitcoin, which I happen to be, there's always the theory that uh, Bitcoin was sent back through a time travel from the future to year 2025 or whenever, sent back to the year 2010 as a text file that could then save the world from you know, fascists, whatever, totalitarianism in the year 2030 or 20, you know, whatever. So there's always that theory as well. So. <laughs> That's great. Well, you know, I've, I've been heavily into Bitcoin myself and I did a, some cryptocurrency startups, but I hadn't heard that specific theory. Yeah, so that, that's cool. That's a cool one. I'll have to see if uh, there's, uh, <laughs> I can do a little more research on that one. Yeah. Yeah. You'll have to do a little time travel, but I'm sure you'll figure it out. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's the many worlds interpretation. I I'm, it's, it's one that is really mind blowing. And, you know, I, I've always, you know, struggled with that. Cause it's like, how could it there, how could every choice that you make, uh, splinter off into another entire universe, you know, based on these quantum ideas, but it's like, well, my mind can't, uh, it can't sort of wrap its itself around infinity. And that is essentially an expression that is infinite. And so then it makes sense that I wouldn't be able to understand it because how could my finite mind understand this infinite um, many worlds theory where, you know, every choice that everyone makes causes another reality to appear, but infinite is infinite. So that means that everything has to exist somewhere, right? Well, that's what, you know, uh, physicists say. So the many worlds interpretation is the other popular interpretation of, of quantum mechanics. Uh, the first being the collapse of the probability wave, which is called the Copenhagen interpretation. Uh, but in the many worlds interpretation, they wanted to find a material way to get around this observer problem. And they said, well, the problem is not that there are many probable realities, but that they all exist out there. And we're just only in one of those. Right. And so uh, the guy who came up with it was a guy named uh, Hugh Everett. And, uh, you know, there was another, and he studied with John Wheeler, who was at Princeton and, and worked with Einstein and Bohr and a lot of those guys. And there was a, another physicist who helped popularize it because it was not a theory that physicists accepted at first. And now it's actually become quite popular. But so this guy said, well, I don't feel like I'm splitting into <laughs> right. multiple versions of me. And, and, and he ever said, well, do you feel like you're moving around the sun? And he goes, well, not really. <laughs> and so right. that got him to at least accept it. But, you know, I have a different take on it. Um, you know, they, they it turns out they say it's either this or this. Well, it turns out simulation theory gives us a, a uh, kind of a framework for both of those, right? So when you think of uh, these different timelines as digital timelines, right, it's kind of like in, with AI and with uh, uh, like the AlphaGo uh, you know, uh, AI, which defeated go champions. How did it learn to do that? It ran lots and lots of games and simulations mm -hmm. against itself. So each timeline becomes like a simulated timeline. I, I mean, we don't know anything that branches physical objects at a large scale, right? I mean, even a tree lays, you know, has an acorn, which takes years. We can clone a sheep, but we still have to grow it from one cell up to an actual sheep. So there's nothing that says we're take this, this much physical objects and we clone them in nature. But we do that all the time in computer science, right? Mm -hmm. It's just copying of bits, right? So it's a branching of information and tree structures are pretty fundamental. You know, and so it's very easy to copy. You don't even have to copy. You just have to keep one copy of it and then you know have the the, the changes between the two different timelines. Uh, and so it turns out, you know, there's a whole new uh, field of quantum computing, which you've probably heard of, uh, you know, which now we have quantum computers, but uh, it was theorized by uh, uh, Richard Feynman back in the 80s. Uh, and what, what happens there is, is that it uses this phenomenon of many worlds to say, okay, we're going to take all the values of these bits and figure out, you know, what the right answer is. Uh, so that we don't have to, you know, there are exponentially hard problems that could take a million years for classical computers to solve, but theoretically quantum computers will be able to solve them pretty quickly. We're still working on, you know, getting up to that, that number of qubits, but you basically, every bit can have a value of one or zero. So by having, you know, two to the X, you have basically all the possible values of these bits. Uh, and then you kind of 
use interference and entanglement to figure out what the right answer is and you choose one. And so, you know, how is that possible when it would take like, like, uh, there was a Oxford, uh, uh, professor named David Deutsch and, you know, he wrote, well, you could solve a problem that takes two to the 500, you know, or 10 to the 500 different possibilities using a quantum computer. But the problem is there's only like 10 to the 80 atoms in the universe, right? So how is it that you're solving this problem so quickly? And many worlds was maybe the only answer to that. So, uh, but you know, the many worlds also gives us an interesting, uh, perspective on the Philip K. Dick idea of multiple realities, because you know each one is like a set of bits, and and what a quantum algorithm is, it's actually pretty hard to create quantum algorithms so far. But eventually, people will come up with making it as easy as you know writing JavaScript, right? Which right, uh, right now it's more like you have to like design your own circuits, right? Which is kind of like 1950s style, you know, computers. <laughs> Like the first chess playing uh, computer was by uh, Claude Shannon, professor at MIT. It, it was an actual physical machine, right? It wasn't an algorithm. It was a physical machine with a bunch of circuits. And so we've gotten slightly beyond that with quantum computing. You don't actually have to go create physical circuits. You have to create diagrams of logical circuits and then put them in, translate them into, you know, the code that IBM or Microsoft runs on their, their cloud uh, quantum computer. But eventually we'll get to the point where we can understand that. And so, you know, it's a nice way to think about what might really be happening, which is that multiple realities branch off and then we go to what we want to be the right answer. Right? Mm, um, wow. Yeah. I think there was a show on Hulu that tried to do that kind of idea. Uh, it didn't do it. Oh yeah. Was it, was it devs? Is that the yes, one you're exactly. Yeah, devs. <laughs> yep, exactly. And, and going back to one of your previous ideas, what if like, you know, the quantum computer becomes so powerful that it actually dictates what the reality will be based on the answer it decides. Who knows? Right. <laughs> right. So the question is, yeah, who's running, the, <laughs> who's running right. the program? People always ask me, well, who's running the simulation? and why would they run this as a simulation right, right. Uh, and because if I were to make a simulation for myself I would be you know a billionaire and right, I wouldn't right, have right. all these problems and and I say well maybe you don't understand the purpose of the simulation right mm -hmm. uh, I mean there's big purposes of simulations like what, what what will happen with the weather will we destroy ourselves with nuclear weapons you know mm -hmm. uh, these types of things that, that we, we've been talking about but then we also play video games for different reasons we play video games to have experience Experiences mm -hmm. that we can't have outside the game, right? Um, I mean, I can't fly on a dragon uh, in in real life or even in Zoom, but in VR, there was you know there was a cool game called Dragonflight. I don't know if it's still around, where uh, you were on the back of a dragon flying through the Grand Canyon. It was pretty cool. And so you try to have these experiences, but without challenges, the game is kind of useless. And so you know the nature of the game may be very different. I think this ties back to our original discussion about the spiritual side of things that the reason isn't just to have a pleasurable simulation. Um, in fact, in the Matrix movies, if you watch the sequels, right, they said the first version of the Matrix was kind of an ideal world, but mm -hmm. the human brain refused to accept right. that because there weren't any challenges, right? Right. right? And so then they made kind of that drab world, gray world, which looks right. kind of like our world right. that uh, you know Keanu was in at the beginning of the Matrix. Right. And who knows what parameters we put into the game to begin with, right? Maybe it's like we're like, okay, this time around, I'm going to be like – broke but happily married and we'll see how that life goes and then this time around i'm gonna be like super rich but i'm gonna be uh insane genius and i'm gonna want to be you know suicidal and so it's like maybe you set a parameter and maybe you know our whole lifetime if you're doing with this quantum idea of time like our whole lifetime that we live in here we go outside and we we're just like in an hour in a in a virtual spa you know and it was like oh wow that was a crazy life i'm gonna go out you know and then you just jump to a different life or something like that um, yeah i mean i think i think it's something like that uh, because because, you know, I take the, the RPG version that we're choosing these parameters, just like, you know, Dungeons and Dragons character would have, you know, some have more strength, some have more charisma, some have more agility. Well, it turns out we're kind of like that, aren't we, right? I mean, I'm not going to be an NBA player in this right. life, but I'm a pretty good computer programmer, right? So <laughs> it's just very different set of challenges. And so, you know, as you tweak those, I kind of view those as difficulty levels, right? Mm -hmm. And so maybe the really advanced players are not the billionaires like Elon Musk, but the people who are having a really tough time are homeless on the street because they ramped up their difficulty level you know, to <laughs> a certain point. <laughs> there you go. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, so this is the question I really wanted to ask you. I know you get asked a lot, you know, is there a way to prove uh, the simulation hypothesis? But the one that I'm really interested in is, 
what do you personally believe? After done, doing all this research, you came up with a whole bunch of different theories. There's the non-human Earth-based life form that's doing this to us, like in the Hitchhiker's Guide. There's the human ancestors that are doing it. There's the super AI that's doing it. Um, or there's uh, other a lot of other options you bring up. So I'm just curious, your own personal belief system. Do you use this as just a thought experiment, or do you actually believe that this may have some merit to it? Well, a little bit of both, actually. So uh, I believe it's a powerful metaphor, and obviously a metaphor based on our technology as we understand it today. Uh, but I also do believe that we live in some kind of a simulation, uh, some kind of an illusory world where we can't see the true nature of reality. And so it is uh, set up for us. So, you know, I, I, I think there's a greater than 50% chance that we live in this kind of a world. Uh, and I think we do set up these challenges for ourselves. And so, you know, for me personally, because people always say, uh, another big question they always ask me is, uh, so what does it mean for me? Like, if we're in a simulation or not, right? And, and I, I think it's more like a combination of the NPC and the RPG version, right? I mean, those are not mutually exclusive, right? You can play, I don't know, The Sims, or you can play World of Warcraft, or Fortnite, and League of Legends, and you have the player characters and you have the NPCs, the non-player characters, all within the same environment. Uh, but, but, you know, I think when we have difficulty in our lives, um, uh, you know, whether it's a health problem or somebody dies, if you reframe it in terms of the simulation, it gives you a completely different perspective. You say, okay, you know, that character's life is over, but they're going to get their score and they're going to, you know, do what they want to do next. Or you say, well, this is a really difficult time for me, but maybe I set that up for myself. Maybe I set it up as a difficulty level that I might have, or maybe because I was off track. And so, you know, it, it, tends to tie to the whole Eastern spiritual concepts. Again, what we talked about at the very beginning turns out, you know, if you look at the evidence uh, and just because you can't prove something is, isn't true. So the simulation hypothesis, a lot of scientists will say, what's well, it's non-falsifiable. Therefore it's not really scientific. And I said, well, just because you can't prove it's not true, doesn't mean you can't find some evidence that it's true. Right. Um, uh, just like, you know, scientists used to not believe that there were, rocks in the sky falling from the sky i said that's ridiculous you know why because there are no rocks in the sky duh that's a non-scientific thing i mean how could you ever prove there are no rocks in the sky right well it turns out they found some evidence of it and then they were able to figure out that in fact there are we just had the wrong model of reality like turns out there's all kinds of rocks in the sky right. and so you know that may be what's happening here is we just have the wrong model of reality uh which is still a very materialistic despite all the findings in quantum physics most scientists tend to have a very materialistic view of the universe, um, but maybe we just have a completely wrong view. And simulation hypothesis gives us a way to to think about that. So, so that you know, I tend to believe that it's more likely than not we're in some kind of an illusory reality. Now, is it? Uh, you know, another complaint that scientists make is, well, you know, our computers cannot you know, simulate everything. Therefore, we can't be in a simulation. <laughs> it's like, right. well, just because we don't know how to do it now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's like the dumbest, right. you know, brute force method. Like I said, you couldn't make World of Warcraft back in the 80s. <laughs> right. right. It doesn't mean you won't ever be able to because it all results in optimization right. uh, techniques. Uh, that's what pushes technology to the next level. Yeah. Absolutely. Very cool. Well, I think that's a, a great place to, to end it there. I could ramble on with you for hours, but um, I, I think that was amazing um, right there. So you said you have a, a next your next book coming out in September. We'll definitely be looking for that. And in the meantime, where can people get in touch with you and where can they find your previous books? Sure. So, you know, the books are all available on Amazon and Apple and all, all the, the regular places. And um, my website is uh, zenentrepreneur.com, which was named after my first book, Zen Entrepreneurship, which was about meditation and business. So different areas, but not really when you think about it. Um, and then I'm on uh, Twitter at, at Riz Stanford. So people can always uh, follow me there and, and connect with me there also. Okay, very cool. I hope they do. Um, well, thank you for teleporting into this worldcast of Simulation Nation, whether you're with us in virtual reality or 2D or listening to the podcast a week from now on Spotify or iTunes. And remember to subscribe to our Instagram at the Simulation Nation, Twitter at Simulation VR, Facebook and Discord, and join us next week for our third episode of our virtual money series about all things crypto, where I'll be joined by Dan Coyne to interview the CEO and founder of Regent Networks, Gregory Landau. Until then, stay plugged my friends.